Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you uh, this morning. I hope you're all well. Well, what does your family say about you? I wonder if you've ever looked up um, your genealogy um, or um, your, like your background or your family history, your, your ancestry, something like that, a family tree before. Um, and, you know, you could, you could have a whole bunch of interesting things you find out. Maybe you're from uh, a famous family or from royalty, or maybe you're from an, an infamous family, uh, a bunch of criminals, who knows? Um, <laughs> a few years ago, my um, uncle did a bit of research and found out a few things about our family background. Apparently, the Beale uh, name comes from a bunch of highwaymen in the UK, and so maybe that says something about me as a person, who knows? Uh, but there's a bit of redemption in there. Apparently, in Australian history, um, we're related to a man named Aaron Sherritt, 
who um, married Ned Kelly's sister and apparently was killed by the Kelly gang for ratting him out. Uh, so who knows what that means. Um, and uh, <laughs> then my, my nan and her sisters, uh, this has no proof whatsoever, but they claim that they are from a line of Venetian princesses. Um, now, <laughs> I have no idea whether that's true. It may well be. Uh, and it, but it certainly meant a lot to them. It made them feel special. In most cultures around the world, your family, your background, has something to say about who you are, right? Uh, your family can determine, not so much in Australia, but uh, it can determine your status in society, kind of your place in, in the world. It can determine who you can marry, uh, what sort of job you can have. Up until the Industrial Revolution, for example, even in the West, if your you know, father was a butcher, you were a butcher. If your um, father was a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. That's kind of how it worked out. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite... So, so your, your family history really matters, and maybe not so much in those ways, but it still does. It, it has an impact on, say, our genetics and our personality, all that sort of stuff. Still, it still matters for us today. And this is the same thing that we find in the Bible. There's a lot of genealogies all over the place. And as we come uh, now to the season of Advent, which we're in, and we're looking forward to Christmas, remembering Jesus' birth, we find ourselves in Matthew 1, a genealogy. And this genealogy, I think Matthew puts it here to tell us something about Jesus. Uh, who his parents were, who his family was, tells us about who he is. Now, this is not a, a normal genealogy, there's um, quite a few things that are a little bit odd here. Uh, the first thing is that not all the names are mentioned. If you kind of know some of the genealogies, say in Luke and uh, throughout 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll notice some of the names are missing. And uh, also, Matthew's then arranged it into lots of 14 generations, three lots of 14 generations. So what's going on there? What's he trying to do? Is he being deceptive? Um, well, I don't think that's true. So we have lots of evidence to say that in the first century, most people kept records of their genealogies. And in fact, uh, the temple itself had an official genealogical record. Uh, we know that from some sources. And so uh, it was so important because um, it determined who people could marry. It determined what tribe you were from. I guess for some of the tribes, it determined what they could do as their job. Um, and uh, it, it determined... Um, Say, for example, uh, in Ezra 2, when the exiles from, were coming back from Babylon and they were coming to back to rebuild the temple, um, we see this moment where uh, the people from the tribe of Levi, who are supposed to be the priests of the temple, they come and they have to prove their genealogical record to be able to serve as priests in the temple. Um, and the reason why is because only the Levites are supposed to serve as priests. And so if they couldn't, and some of them couldn't, uh, they uh, had to be barred from serving as priests. And so it was really important to, uh, to know your genealogical record. And so I think basically if uh, Matthew had been trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and say, there's something a bit, you know, a bit sus here in the, in the genealogies, no one would have believed him. They would have known because they all have these records. It was extremely important. So what is he doing? Well, uh, we also have evidence that people memorized genealogies. It was a pretty common thing. And so they'd have these slightly smaller simplified lists uh, as, as mnemonic devices, a bit simpler to memorize. But the people they would pick to memorize are the people who had some sort of significance for you and your family, some sort of significance for the nation in some way. 
And so, uh, because we had the official records, you'd memorize this name and this name, the two significant names, and the ones in the middle didn't really matter so much, so you, know, you just sort of leave them out. But what does that mean? It means that the genealogy is, uh, the person writing the genealogy is picking names of significance for, at least in this case, for Jesus Christ, for Jesus the Messiah in verse 1. And so who are the names here that have significance and what do they say about Jesus? Well, in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we get two of the first names, the most significant names there. They're so significant, in fact, that they divide up two of the sets of 14 and they're mentioned explicitly in verse 1. So what does it mean to be a son of Abraham and a son of David? Well, Abraham, uh, in chapter 12 of Genesis, was told, God told him, uh, when he and Sarah couldn't have children, that God would give them children and that they would be a great nation, they would be a blessing to to all the nations. Uh, And it was something they had to trust in God in. And so, at least, at the very least, being a son of Abraham means being part of God's chosen people, part of the promise. And then in uh, chapter 17, God says again to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And so you start to get this picture uh, that you're expecting some sort of kingship to come along. And then eventually, all the way at the end of Genesis, in Genesis uh, 49, um, after Abraham and uh, Sarah had passed away, and now we have um, Jacob who's carrying on the promises, who becomes known as Israel and the father of the nation... Uh, He's talking to his 12 sons who become the fathers of all the 12 tribes. And to Judah, he says this, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, to whom it belongs, shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And so very quickly, uh, a few generations on, and Judah is mentioned in uh, Matthew's genealogy in verse 2, we start to see that there's an expected king, an expected king. And then as you follow the genealogical record down in Matthew, we get to David, and here he is, or it's at least supposed, the great king. But then God told David in 2 Samuel 7, he said this, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we find out here that it's not actually David we're expecting. There's someone who will have this uh, kingdom forever established by God. And as time goes on and David passes away and uh, Israel is on the brink of going into exile, uh, Isaiah is told by God... In uh, chapter 11, he's told, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and Jesse is David's father, according to the genealogical records. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. A very similar promise made in Genesis 40, to, to that of Genesis 49. And so what is Matthew saying here by saying Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David? He's saying to us, this is that king. This is that king that you've been waiting for. And that's what the the word uh, Messiah or or, or Christ, depending on your translation, means. It means the anointed king of God. 
Matthew's saying, here's your king, recognize him. You know, we sung earlier this morning, we sung, uh, below in Bethlehem, your king, the king is sleeping. Oh, what a glorious night. This is the king. So Matthew calls us to recognize your king, but what sort of king will he be? People of Jesus' day thought uh, the coming king of Israel um, would be a strong um, and righteous but hard king. He would be someone who uh, would have little patience for sinful people, for the weak. Uh, People believed that when you were blessed by God, God made you rich and powerful and you were well-to-do in society, and so if you uh, believe that the king is going to get rid of all sinners uh, and that sort of people, then you expect that um, all of the kind of people who are not blessed by God in your society are going to be done away with. But there's something that um, challenges that view in this genealogy. It challenges it quite deeply. Have, have a look. What is it? It's, it's the women, believe it or not. Um, you see, uh, women are odd to have in a genealogy of the first century. Um, descent was counted through the male line. And um, if you, so if you do have them in the genealogy, you're trying to say something by them. You're, you're trying to make a point with them. And these women, particularly, if you think about them, um, all of them, we've got Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, and Ruth in verse 5, Uriah's wife, uh, who's Bathsheba in verse 6, and Mary in verse 16. So Tamar pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah would sleep with her and give her children. Um, Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho, uh, a Canaanite, an enemy of God's people. Ruth, a Moabite, um, also an enemy of God's people, and they worshipped the god Chemosh, which involved human sacrifice. Uh, And according to Deuteronomy uh, 23, um, Moabites were not to be admitted into the uh, fellowship of God's people until the 10th generation, and here she is as the grandmother of King David. And then Uriah's wife, uh, Matthew doesn't use her name, Bathsheba, but he kind of labels her as the problem that she, that she causes, or at least, um, not, not problem she causes, but um, the kind of, it, it highlights the sin of David, um, saying this is the wife of another, another person. David looked from the roof of his balcony and saw Bathsheba bathing and sent her husband, so she's already married, off to battle so he would die and he could take her as his wife. And so these at least the first four, seem to undermine the kingship of David. And then you've got Mary in verse 16. The scandalous conception, probably the talk of the town, and ever since has been, uh, you know, a, a cause for accusation from people who don't believe in the virgin birth. Uh, undermines the kingship of Jesus in some way. So why does Matthew highlight these genealogies? See, to the, uh, to the strong and the powerful and the righteous, these look like embarrassing genealogies. They look like scandalous, shameful lists of people. But what we notice is that each of these people, each of these women are used, they're, they're, they start from scandal, but then they're used by God to bring about His King, His righteous King, and the plan for God's people. What does this tell us about that king? 
Well, I think at the very least, it, it tells us that he's not ashamed of uh, the weak, the undeserving, and the unfitting. He's not a king that's um, far off in glorious royalty. He's a king in humbled, frail humanity. God himself came into that genealogy, bore that scandal, that became his family as good kings and wicked kings, adulterers and heroes and prostitutes. That's the family he entered. I think this, this shows us, Matthew's showing us here, that God's plan isn't worked out by uh, the goodness or the fittingness or the strength of the people involved. His point is that his plan is about God's mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it. And this actually leads us on, I think, uh, quite nicely as to why Matthew chooses to mention the exile to Babylon in his genealogy. It's interesting, isn't it, that the three kind of sections are divided up by the most important people. So you've got, you know, Abraham and then David and then the exile. That's a bit of a strange thing to kind of put in a genealogical record. It's an event rather than a person. So why does Matthew bring it up? The exile was a monumental event, um, a disastrous event in Israel's history, uh, completely wiped you know, from the land, sent up to a nation that's foreign, um, away from God, away from all the blessings of God and the protection of God, um, a, a moment which caused mass disillusionment. You know, had God's promises ceased? Had he stopped uh, loving them as a nation? What had happened? We find out in the Old Testament, over and over again, we hear the problem was actually sin. God called them back to himself multiple times, over and over again. And they were unable to turn to him and live righteously and right before him. And I think Israel's story here is a paradigm for humanity. It tells us what humanity is like. They're humans and they were, the partic- they were special chosen people. If anyone had a chance, they had a chance. And they didn't. And this is what we find our, ourselves alike. So why does Matthew bring it up? Well, I think his point is, from the exile onwards, the exile was still happening. Even though they'd sort of returned, the problem is still sin. Sin had not been dealt with until Jesus. It doesn't just go away. And I think, I think exile really stands not just for being out of Jerusalem, but being out of the presence of God. Sinners cannot be in the presence of God, and we don't, if we don't have it dealt with, we are in exile from God. So how does Jesus and this genealogy deal with that problem? Well, I think um, the three lots of 14 generations um, is just another way of Matthew saying six lots of seven generations, but he's divided it between Abraham, David, and exile. So what's significant about dividing uh, the generations up that way? What's he trying to say to us? He he says it quite emphatically, right? Um, In verse 17, repeats the 14 generations over and over again. And there's lots of speculation about this, but I think the most uh, simple and and the thing that makes the most sense of the Old Testament testimony um, is something called the year of Jubilee. Um, the year of Jubilee was a, a, a year that the people of Israel were supposed to observe. So um, we all know that uh, you know it was, it was normal for the week of um, you know of God's people to be observed as six days of work and a seventh day of rest. They also had that with their time of harvest. 
They had um, six years of harvest, and the seventh year, the land was supposed to be rested, and it would be a year where they would honour God. And the year of Jubilee was they'd count seven of those seven harvest years, and you get 49 years. And then that last year, that 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. And what's so significant about this year? Well, there's two things. The first was um, all property, if you sold your property, it had to be returned um, to your genealogical family. Um, so it's a release of property. But I think the most significant thing is if you were an Israelite in slavery, the law called for your freedom at no cost. That Usually you'd have to buy freedom. This was no cost, just complete freedom for all, all slaves, all Israelite slaves, all of God's people being freed from slavery. So what is Matthew saying with that? I think Matthew here is counting the generations because he's saying for the Israelite person who's thinking this is the calendar year, this is what normally happens, the Lord's jubilee is at hand. You are about to be set free from your slavery. You are about to have your, your land, which is at the place where God's presence dwells. You're going to be returned to that place. I think G, uh, Matthew here is saying the coming of the king means that. So how does he accomplish that? How does Jesus accomplish this uh, you know, return from, from exile, metaphorically speaking. Well, um, because, we, because we heard that um, the, ex- the problem with exile was sin. Well, we mentioned Isaiah, who um, talked about the son of David earlier. And uh, talking about that son in chapter 53, Isaiah says, "...but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities." The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then in verse 10, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. The coming of the king means forgiveness of sins because he bore them, he bore ours. He brings us back from exile to be with God. He's not ashamed of the helpless, the vulnerable, and the weak. In fact, they are his own family. He is the saviour for those who can't save themselves. Matthew's genealogy tells us the king has come, Jesus, the anointed one. Put your trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the birth of Jesus, the king who came into our broken world and bore our sins. We pray that you would help us to put our trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.